Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Verses 1 and 2. And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in his house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. Burkett Notes In the last verse of the foregoing chapter, we find how industriously our blessed Savior withdrew himself from the concourse and thong of people which had flocked after him from every quarter. And to show how little he affected the applause and commendation of the multitude, he left the cities and was without in desert places, hereby giving his ministers an instructive example to decline vainglory and to shun popular applause. But now the words before us show that our Savior, having entered privately, as is probable, into the city of Capernaum, it is presently noised and reported that he was in the house, and a mighty concourse and thong of people are after him, insomuch that neither the house nor hardly the streets could contain them. Thence learn that such as least seek after honor and applause from men are oft-times most famous and renowned. Our Savior was so far from seeking the people's praise and commendation that he came into Capernaum without observation, and betook himself to his dwelling house there. But the more he sought to lay hid, the more he was taken notice of. Honor flies from them that pursue it, and pursues them that fly from it. The way to be honored is to be humble. God seldom honors a proud man by making him either eminently serviceable or successful. Observe farther, the people being come together, our Savior takes the opportunity to preach, and he preached the word unto them, teaching his ministers by his example to embrace all opportunities, in season and out of season, on the Lord's day and on the weekday, to edify our people by our ministry, by our public exhortations, by our private instructions, prudent admonitions, and holy examples. Verses 3 through 12. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick and palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Burkett notes, here we have the relation of our Savior's miraculous healing of one sick of the palsy at Capernaum, where observe one, the diseased and distressed person, one sick of the palsy, which disease, being a resolution and weakness of the nerves, enfeebles the joints and confines the person to his better couch. As a demonstration of Christ's divine power, he was pleased to single out the palsy and leprosy, incurable diseases, to work a cure upon such as were afflicted with them. 
Now this person was so great a cripple by reason of the palsy that he was born of four. He could not go, nor was capable of being led, but was carried by four in his batter couch. Observe, too, as the grievousness of the disease, so the greatness of their faith. The man and his friends had a firm persuasion that Christ was clothed with a divine power and able to help him, and they hoped, in his goodness, that he was also willing to help him. Accordingly, the roof of the Jewish houses being flat, they uncovered some part of it and let the bed down with the sick man in it into the room where Christ was. Observe 3. No sooner did they exercise their faith by believing, but Christ exerts his divine power and healing. And see the marvelous efficacy of faith. It obtained not only what was desired, but more than was expected. They desired only the healing of the body, but Christ heals the body and soul too. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven thee. Thereby our Savior shows them that sin is the original cause of all bodily diseases, and consequently that in sickness the best way to find ease and deliverance from pain is to first seek for pardon. The sense of pardon, in some degree, will take away the sense of pain. Observe 4. The exception which the scribes took against our Savior for pronouncing that this man's sins were forgiven him. They accuse him of the sin of blasphemy urging that it's God's particular prerogative to pardon sin. Their doctrine was true, but their application false. Nothing more true than that it is the greatest degree of blasphemy for any mere man to arrogate to himself the incommunicable prerogative of God, which consists in an absolute and authoritative power to forgive sin. But then they're denying this power to Christ of forgiving sin, which he had as God from all eternity and as mediator, God and man in one person when here upon earth. This was blasphemy to them, the challenging of it, none in him. Observe 5. Our Savior gives the scribes a twofold demonstration of his Godhead. One, by letting them understand that he knew their thoughts. Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they reasoned within themselves. To search the hearts and to know the thoughts or reasoning of men is not in the power of angels or men, but the prerogative of God only. 2. By assuming to himself a power to forgive sin. For our Savior here, by assuming to himself a power to forgive sins in his own name and by his own authority, doth give the world an undeniable proof and convincing evidence of his Godhead. For who can forgive sins but God only? Observe 6. The effect of this miracle upon the minds of the people. They marveled and were amazed, but did not believe. They admired our Savior for an extraordinary man, but did not believe him to be God. Learn thence that the sight of Christ's miracles is not sufficient to work faith in the soul without the concurring operation of the Holy Spirit. The one may make us marvel, the other must make us believe. Verses 13 to 17. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with the publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, they that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. 
Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the unwearied pains and diligence which our Savior used in the execution of his ministerial office and calling. No sooner had he done preaching in Capernaum and healing the sick of the palsy, but he goes out thence to the seaside to preach there. O blessed Savior, how perpetually wert thou employed in the labors of thy calling, in the service of thy Father, and for the good of mankind. Thou wentest about doing good, setting a pattern for all thy ministers to follow. How doth the example of thy laborious diligence at once instruct and shame us? Observe, too, the number of our Lord's disciples not being filled up. Observe what free and gracious, unexpected and undeserved choice he makes. Levi, that is Matthew, for he hath both names, a grinding publican who had gathered the taxes for the Romans and was probably guilty, as others were, of the sins of covetousness, extortion, and oppression. Yet he is called to follow Christ as a special disciple. Learn thence that such is the freeness of God's grace that it calls and converts sinners unto Christ when they think not of him nor seek unto him. Little did Levi now think of a Savior, much less seek after him, yet he is at this time called by him. Matthew, a publican, Zacchaeus, an extortioner, Saul, a prosecutor, all these are brought home to God as instances and evidences of the mighty power of converting grace. Observe 3. Matthew's ready compliance with Christ's call. He arose and followed him. When the inward call of the Holy Spirit accompanieth the outward call of the Word, the soul readily complies, and presently yields obedience to the voice of Christ. Christ oftentimes speaks by his word to our ears, and we hear not, we stir not. But when he speaks by his spirit efficacy to our hearts, Satan shall not hold us down, the world shall not keep us back, but we shall, with Levi, instantly arise and follow our Savior. Observe 4. Levi, or Matthew, to show his thankfulness to Christ, makes him a great feast. Christ invited Matthew to discipleship. Matthew invites Christ to a dinner. The servant invites his master. A sinner invites his Savior. We do not find that when Christ was invited to any table that he ever refused to go. If a publican, if a Pharisee invited him, he constantly went, not so much for the pleasure of eating as for the opportunity of conversing and doing good. Christ feasts us when we feast him. Learn hence that new converts are full of affection towards Christ and very expressive in their love unto him. Matthew, touched with a sense of Christ's rich love, makes him a royal feast. Observe 5. The cavil and exception which the scribes and Pharisees made at our Lord's free conversation. They censured him for conversing with sinners. He justifies himself, telling them that he conversed with them as their physician, not as their companion. They that are whole need no physician, says Christ, but they that are sick. As if our Lord had said, with whom should a physician converse but with his sick patients? Now I'm come into the world to do the office of a kind physician unto men. Surely, then, I am to take all opportunities of conversing with them, that I may help and heal them, for they that are sick need the physician. But as for you, scribes and Pharisee, who are well and whole in your own opinion and conceit, I have no hope of doing good upon you, for such as think themselves whole desire no physician's help. From this assertion of our Saviors, these truths are suggested to us. 1. That sin is the soul's malady, its spiritual disease and sickness. 2. That Christ is the physician appointed by God for the cure and healing of this disease. 3. That there are multitudes of sinners spiritually sick 
who yet think themselves sound and whole. For, that such, and only such, as find and feel themselves spiritually sick, are the subjects capable of Christ's healing. They that are whole need not the physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the opinionatively righteous, but the sensible sinner to repentance. Verses 18 through 22. And the disciples of John and the Pharisee used to fast. And they came and say unto him, Why did the disciples of John and of the Pharisee fast, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the day will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast in those days. No man can soweth a piece of new cloth onto an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine does burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. Burkett notes, Observe here, 1. A great difference betwixt John's disciples and Christ's in the matter of fasting. John's disciples imitated him, who was a man of austere life and much given to fasting. Therefore he is said to come neither eating nor drinking. Matthew 11.18 On the other side, Christ's disciples follow him, who came eating and drinking, as other men did. And yet, though there was a great difference betwixt John's disciples and Christ's in the matter of practice, they were all of one faith and religion. Thence learn that there may be unity of faith and religion among those who do not maintain any uniformity in practice. Men may differ in some outward religious observances and customs, and yet agree in the fundamentals of faith and religion. Thus did John's disciples and Christ's. The one fasted often, the other fasted not. Observe, too, in that the disciples of the Pharisees used to fast, as well as John's disciples, we may learn that hypocrites and wicked men may be and sometimes are as strict and forward in the outward duty of religion as the holiest and best of Christians. They pray, they fast, they hear the word, they receive the sacraments. They do, yea, it may be, they outdo and go beyond the sincere Christian in external duties and outward performances. Observe 3. The defensive plea which our blessed Savior makes for the not fasting of his disciples. He declares that it was neither suitable to them nor tolerable for them thus to fast at present. Not suitable in regard of Christ's bodily presence with them. This made it a time of joy and rejoicing, not of mourning and fasting. Christ is the bridegroom and his church is the bride. Whilst, therefore, his spouse did enjoy his bodily presence with her, it was a day of joy and rejoicing to her and mourning and fasting were improper for her. But when Christ's bodily presence shall be removed, there will be cause enough to fast and mourn. Again, this discipline of fasting was not at present tolerable for the disciples, for they were raw, green, and tender, not fit for austerities, nor could bear as yet the service of religion no more than an old garment could bear a piece of new stiff cloth to be set into it, which will make the rent worse if the garment comes close to a stretch or no more than old bottles can keep new wine. As if our Savior had said, My disciples at present are tender and weak, newly called and converted. They cannot therefore bear the severities of religion presently. But ere long I shall leave them and go to heaven, from whence I shall send down the Holy Spirit upon them, which shall enable them to do all the duties which the gospel enjoins. 
Now, the intended lesson of instruction from hence is this, that it is hurtful and dangerous for young converts, for weak Christians, to be put upon the severer exercises of religion, or to be urged to the performance of such duties as are above their strength. But they ought to be handled with that tenderness which becomes the mild and gentle dispensation of the gospel. Our Savior here commends prudence to his ministers in treating their people according to their strength and putting them upon duties according to their time and standing. <laughs>